I'll be carrying the Halloween energy. Okay. I got I gotta use good theatrical presentation because I know Kevin is watching, so I can't mess up. And judging. Yeah. And judging. <laughs> and you will be graded on this later on, Kylie. Just say. So ah, dang it. <laughs> I am taking notes. <laughs> Alrighty. Hello, everyone, and welcome to our Halloween special series. You are tuning in for our very special Pester the Guester episode featuring Kevin Wetmore. Kevin Hello. Wetmore is truly a jack of all trades when it comes to the entertainment industry. He is a horror writer in both fiction and nonfiction. He's a theatrically trained actor who's appeared in countless productions on stage and screen. He is a professor of theater arts and MFA PP program director at Loyola Marymount University, my alma mater. He is also an excellent director and fight choreographer extraordinaire. Kevin Wetmore is a member of the Horror Writers Association and a five-time nominee for the Bram Stoker Award. He's a fabulous DM and all-around horror fanatic. Welcome, Kevin, aka Dr. Wetmore. Hi, thank you for having me. Happy thank Halloween, y'all. Yeah, it's yeah. time. <laughs> By the time you're all listening to this, it will be Halloween season. But for everyone who doesn't know, it's uh, it's about a month before, so... But Kylie's clearly not a holiday. It's a lifestyle and a mindset. It's every day is Halloween if you're doing it right. Exactly. Uh, Thank you. Thank you. Now I can definitely decorate my house tomorrow, even though my husband says I can't yet. It's a lifestyle. See, the problem with our house, you can't tell the difference between the regular decor and the Halloween decorations. We're just like, eh, pretty much all the same. So. Yeah, there's some overlap. <laughs> I feel like that makes sense for you guys. You guys always go really hard for Halloween with the costumes and everything. We do. We do family costumes and we we decorate our front yard. We have a, a sort of cemetery with ghosts that we put up each year and add stuff to. So, and yes, we do have to, that, that the indoor decor, fine. The outdoor stuff, it's like, what will the neighbors put up with? How, mm. uh, how soon can we get this out? And how soon do you decorate? We we usually put out the outdoor stuff um, end of September-ish and then take it down mid-November. In 2020, when we're like, oh, we're not, not having a Halloween, thank you. And we need it earlier. So I think we got, we have a Halloween tree that we have inside with ornaments and, and fun stuff. So we set that up on like September 2nd. And then when the, we did the outdoor stuff about a week later because we just, we wanted to get in better spirits during the pandemic. So we didn't give out candy that year, but uh, I have young children, so... We did an in-house trick-or-treat where dad went behind every door and then the kids would come to the door in costume and knock. And I'd be like, oh, your costumes are great and put candy in their bags. So they, because at, at that point they were, I think, six and four. So we Aww. wanted them to um, not not have a Halloween. So they got to go trick-or-treating in the house. And that year the group costume was Scooby-Doo. My wife dressed like Shaggy. I was the, the creep, the guy that, you know, so they catch me, wrap me up in rope and take off my mask. Mm -hmm. uh, Mr. Magruder. <laughs> And then they were, uh, they both wanted to be Scooby-Doo, but my wife talked my daughter into being Scrappy-Doo. So we had two kids dressed like Great Danes. I was dressed like the villain and my wife had a, a goatee and a, and a wig and made her look like Shaggy. So we, we do it. things every year. We did um, Batman because uh, my son was really into Batman. So he was Batman. My daughter was Catwoman. Uh, I was Bane and my wife was Jim Gordon. Uh, and people did not know she was a woman. So that was fun. When we did Despicable Me, I was Gru, the kids dressed like minions, and my wife dressed like Dr. Nefario. Because for some odd reason, she likes dressing up like men at Halloween. That's her big thing. She's like, how, it's how, how very Shakespearean of her. It's it like is, reverse it Shakespeare. <laughs> we did Star Trek, the kids, because the kids love the Trouble with Tribbles episode. 
So we dressed our dog as Spock. My wife was Kirk. I was a Klingon. And the kids had outfits that made them look like giant piles of tribbles. <laughs> For those of us that haven't seen that Star Trek episode, what are tribbles? Tribbles are small fuzzy balls, uh, roughly three inches in diameter, that, that purr and coo. Uh, and uh... They- so in the episode, Captain Kirk ends up in a mound of about 1,005,732 Tribbles. But anytime Tribbles get near Klingons, they start screaming. So my kids thought that was the best part of Halloween is anytime they got near dad in his Klingon outfit, they would just start screaming. <laughs> so did you regret that costume at all afterwards after enduring Not a screaming? Second. For- no, 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 no. Halloween is about the screaming anyway. So I... Uh, it's 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 weird because I like to think of myself as a nice guy. I don't want to hurt anyone. One of the reasons why I became a fight choreographer was to make sure that actors can hurt each other safely without actually suffering any pain or problems. And now I, I run a literary haunted house at my university's library, uh, which is uh, instead of people jumping out and yelling boo, they jump out and do a scene from Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Uh, and it's kind of fun. Oh, that sounds like so cool. Watching it run because it's it's like twelve or so five minute scenes that you go through sequentially, and sometimes they're linked, sometimes they're they're all tied to a central theme. Uh, like last year, the theme was evil fairies, and so it was called uh, the Haunting of Hannon is the main title, Haunting of Hannon Ten Wittershins, because Wittershins is if you walk backwards. Uh, counterclockwise actually around a church it opens up a gate to fairyland so we send people counterclockwise through the library and then it opened up the basement doors and they descended into the kingdom of fae where things got really scary but it's it's for me it's kind of a pleasure to hear people screaming in the library and not because they're frustrated over a paper or a final uh, but because something i wrote has just made them really unnerved so that's that's always fun yeah. So I was going to ask later, but I'm curious now for Haunting of Hannon, were you the original mind that came up with that? And have you yeah. been the writer every year? It, yes. It, it it began as as part of a joke that uh, was taken seriously. Um, 11 years ago, the library was doing a special collection exhibit on Gothic novels. And they called me in since they knew I was a horror writer. And they said, we, we want to do a couple different things. And at the same time, the Campus Art Gallery was doing this uh, exhibition on sort of uh, really disturbing artwork, occult artwork. And so I got together with the head of the art gallery and the head of the library. And they're like, can you come up with some fun things to do? I'm like, well, we'll create an original performance called The Summoning using like medieval summoning rituals. And we will carry a casket from the art gallery down to Otis, this art school that's down on Manchester Boulevard because they were doing something similar. And we, uh, we, we got free flashlights that we handed out. So everyone in the audience got a free flashlight that said the summoning on it. And you could sort of light up the scenes you wanted to see and walk through because we did it in Dunning Courtyard. And then we carried this casket all the way down uh, and placed the casket in the art gallery at Otis. And then people had to walk out with the cast facing away from them, whispering things. So that was the first thing we did. The second thing we did was called I Bid You Welcome, the Dracula Variations, which is where we did the same scene from five different variations of Dracula, five different adaptations of Dracula for the stage to show how Dracula has sort of been presented differently uh, from, you know, 1920s through the present day. And then the third thing I said, well, you know, I'm, we, we're sitting there and um, I, I throw out those two and they're like, yeah, we'll do that. We'll do that. And I said, and right around Halloween, uh, if you give me the entire library, I'll turn it into a literary haunted house and people like jump out and do a scene. And I figured we'd all laugh and then talk about what we'd really do. And the dean of the library went, go on. <laughs> I was like, well, I'd, I'd want to take people down to the basement and to places that we're not ordinarily allowed to go. And it's going to cost a little money. And I figured those would be deal breakers. And they're like, we can handle that. What else? So the the first time it was just uh, we did two, one in the afternoon and one in the evening, a family friendly one and then a family unfriendly one. And it was just disconnected scenes. Here's a scene from Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Here's a scene from Edgar Allan Poe. Here's a scene from Dracula. Here's a scene from uh, H.P. Lovecraft. 
And it was the most popular event that the library ever had. So they came back to me after it and said, can we do it again next year? And I said, well, what's the special collections exhibit? And they said, it's going to be the parents and children of Moby Dick. You know, it's going to be all about literature of the sea. And I was like, okay. Mm-hmm. So we did the haunting of Hannon II, the last voyage of the flying Dutchman. And it was all scenes from uh, literature that deal with like ghost pirates or sea monsters. And then for the third year, the special collection exhibit was about uh, fairy tales as cautionary stories for girls. So we did Little Dead Riding Hood. Uh, and it was looking at sort of the, the ways in which um, women are represented in fairy tales and how sometimes, you know, like Little Red Riding Hood fights back. And then the fourth one was about um, time. So we called it Out of Time. And there was basically this clock ticking throughout the library and all the scenes were kind of about death. And from then on, you know, each year I say, what's the special collection exhibit? And then we write, a, uh, you know, a dozen scenes about it. So the hardest one was year six. They said um, the special collection exhibit theme is uh, collaboration, which is, of course, terrifying. Yeah. Yeah. So I said, okay, uh, I like a challenge. And because I'm an academic, I listen to podcasts in the car. Uh, And I like not, not, not the fun ones. I listen to like hard deep ones and so i was listening to a a (laughs) podcast about dante and uh they were talking about dante's inferno and they were talking about how the gates of hell are wide open uh in dante's inferno when uh, christ comes down and harrows hell uh you know bashes his way into hell and then when he leaves he doesn't repair anything so the gates of hell are wide open and dante asks virgil why you know why doesn't everybody leave and virgil's like well they stay here because they think they belong here they and the the host of the podcast said so they collaborate in their own damnation and i'm like well there it is we're going to do Dante's mm. Inferno. We're going to do Haunting of Hannon 666, The Inferno. We're going to follow Dante and throw in all of these other scenes. So uh, the the Circle of Lust was a dance club. You know, there were there were sort of all these fun scenes. There was a, a scene of violence, devils, demons, all sorts of scary stuff. Um, the seventh year, I believe, was Mark Twain's travel writing. Uh, then we went um, online in 2020 for uh our uh which you i believe remember yeah i was in um, that one <laughs> were, uh which was our digital collection because we had to do it online and then we had two more since then the last ride on the cyclone the special collections exhibit was about um extreme weather and at the time i was kind of being inspired by how uh hurricane katrina had hit six flags new orleans so it's this sort of idea of an underwater amusement park and carnival yeah. Uh, that had been destroyed by weather. So we had scenes that dealt with extreme weather, but we also had scenes from amusement parks and carnivals and sometimes combined. And then last year was fairies. And this year, the our 11th year is called The Haunting of Hannah and 11, The Library Windows, which is based on a story by a Scottish woman named Margaret Oliphant, who wrote the story about this young woman who the boys are beginning to get interested in. So her parents <laughs> send her up to her Scottish aunt to stay with her because they're like, well, her aunt will keep her in line and away from the boys. And every night the the girl looks out her window at the library across the street. And in the library window, she sees this like fine young man. We're talking like Ryan Gosling levels of sweet. And she's like, oh, he's so dreamy. And she she waits every night and then looks out her window to see him. And finally, one day during the day, she looks out her window and realizes that entire window is bricked up and has been for like 100 years. When she's looking out the window at night, she sees she's seeing into the past and she's sort of fallen in love with a ghost. So I was like, oh, that's pretty cool. But the um, the special collections exhibit is about objects which tell a story, uh, how we can sort of get narratives from objects. So I decided we're going to do cursed objects this year. Uh, and in keeping with that theme of the library windows, the other windows of the library are not just the, li- the windows that are actual windows that you can look out. Every book in a library is a window. You can see the rest of the world through the library windows that are books. 
So the the script plays around with those ideas and cursed objects, books, books as windows and windows as ways that you can see out and see in. So we have a dozen different scenes uh, from from different uh, authors and whatnot. That'll be a lot of fun, I hope. It's so cool how you kind of just fell into this. And as the yeah. improv performer you are, you were like, well, I'm going to run with it and make something cool yeah. every year. Oh, yeah. I fully concede. I love it. I mean, this is this for me is a treat coming up with stuff and encountering actors. Only about two thirds of the script are written before auditions. The last third is written after people audition. Because when folks come in, I'm like, what what skills do you have? What talents do you have? And I write scenes. Like last year, we had three Filipino students audition. I'm like, would you guys be willing to do a scene about Filipino fairies and do half the scene in Tagalog? And they're like, oh, that'd be so cool. Oh, and for cool. me, the thrill was seeing then Filipino students sort of coming through the haunt, not being aware of that. And suddenly they, they walk in on this scene where people are speaking Tagalog in English or uh, Tagalinglish, they called it. And, the, the you know, the sort of face lighting up of this is my culture. This is yeah. And I can understand things that these people can't. This is awesome. So we had we also had a couple scenes in Chinese. Uh, we had a Mexican fairy who was uh, told stories in Spanish and also in English, but was encouraging people to dance because he's an Aztec fairy. Oh, uh, nice! So, yeah. So I, I wait and see who shows up and say, "Oh, we're we're going to have some fun with this," and we're yeah. going to use what languages you speak, what skills you have, what you bring to the table, uh, and then in other cases, like, "Hey, can you do an Irish accent? Cool, you're in the scene about the banshee." <laughs> Well, that sounds so cool. And now I now I feel like I got to come out and see that sometime. It's October 20th and 21st. If you're in L.A., uh, it's free mm -hmm. to the public and it sells out every year. Every year we expand it a little bit more and we still end up turning about 100 people away. So, yeah, oh I'll goodness. make sure to link the show info so that way people can come and see. And then for students who haven't auditioned before or people who go to LMU, it is like the most fun show to audition for. Because I, I auditioned one year in person and one year virtually. And the stuff that you get to do is just so different from a traditional audition. It is really fun and chaotic and just gives you space to play. So go see Haunting of Hannon. Out of curiosity <laughs> now, Kylie, can you uh, let us all know, at least, uh, you know, uh, our listeners and myself know, what? how exactly did you participate in this, Kylie? What was your so, part? <laughs> from what I remember, I did... I was in it in 2020, so it was virtual. And I did one scene with my friend I was talking to on Zoom and she got got by something. She disappeared. And the other one, I was a mad scientist where I got to be really crazy. And that was really fun because I don't look crazy. So I never would get cast as crazy, but I got to be a mad scientist and torture, which was fun. Mm -hmm. That's a scene about how how you can actually scare people to death. That that which is a real thing that happens. And most of the scene, I literally copied, cut and paste out of scientific literature. But the characters are taken from a story by Edgar Allan Poe called "The System of Doctor Tar and Professor Feather." And Kylie spent half of the scene chewing on her hair, uh, and the other half being utterly delighted that uh, she got to torture Steve. Um, yeah. <laughs> disappointed, that he finally passed away from fright. For those of you who want to see this. It is still on YouTube. Haunting of Hannon, our digital collection is on YouTube. It's about an hour long. The truth be told, that was my father's favorite scene. It's the only time my parents have ever been able to see it. They live on the East Coast. So they watched it the next day. And my dad's like, I really like that girl chewing on her hair. She's fun. So, <laughs> I'm <and> honored. <laughs> I have the wet more seal of approval. <laughs> hey, if he likes you, you're set for life. 
and everyone liked the clown. Well, not like the clown, but everyone remembers the clown. And then the one that I got the most questions about was the scene about the 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 the, the two people talking, and you think they're boyfriend and girlfriend, but eventually you find out they're brother and sister. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> yeah. I, I remember seeing that one in rehearsal and also having very similar feelings of, huh? Then, then, huh? <laughs> so many different emotions happening all at once. Thank you. That's what we're going for is Guillermo del Toro refers to horror as a roller coaster for the soul. And it's not about catharsis. It's not like watching the sisterhood of the traveling pants while eating Haagen-Dazs where afterwards you have a good cry and you feel better. Horror is about leaving confused and weirded out and like looking around you as you head back to your car. So Exactly. It's, it's taking simple stories and creating a big emotional reaction. Yeah. Well, so we since we jumped into the author part, can we ask a couple more questions about your writing career? Of course. Of course. So how did you get started as an author and a writer? And what generally has been your path? Mm. You've done a uh, lot. <laughs> well, it started off as a scholar. I went, you know, I, I went to graduate school in Pittsburgh, uh, at the University of Pittsburgh, and I wrote a dissertation. And when when you're like a grad student and trying to become a professor, you're also writing lots of little articles and essays uh, about stuff that most people won't actually find very interesting. Shakespeare's erotic use of the semicolon and measure for measure, or uh, <laughs> you know, uh, three interesting South African plays. Uh, and you're sort of explicating and basically talking to a, a small group of people who are interested in the same thing. And so I, I published my dissertation, and then I wrote a few other books on the same topic, and I edited a few collections of scholarly articles. But at the same time, I'm going, the new Star Wars trilogy was coming out at that at that time, the, the prequel trilogy, not the new, new one, but at the time, the new one. And I'm looking at that. I'm doing a lot of writing about post-colonial African literature, and I'm watching this going, they're all using the language of colonialism, you know, the empire, the rebellion. Uh, and yet, if you look at how people are depicted, how few Black people are in the Star Wars movies, how Asians are depicted, and basically in the first two trilogies, they're not, but they are presented as aliens, um, you know, in the form of aliens. Uh, and I was looking at religion, and I thought, I should just write a book about Star Wars from the same perspective, this sort of post-colonial analysis. So I wrote a book called The Empire Triumphant, um, which uh, did better than anything else I had ever written before. Uh, got me interviews from like big newspapers. And then I got a call from the producers of the Star Wars 30th anniversary special for the History Channel saying, hey, can we come interview you as uh, you know an international Star Wars expert? And I was like, I need to call my parents first and let them know. Hey, mom, dad, remember when I was a little kid and you told me no one would pay me to like watch and think about Star Wars? I beg to differ. So that was a lot of fun. And at that point, I said, oh, I, I can still do the academic stuff, but I should also be writing. I wrote about Star Wars because I love Star Wars, and I recognize that it's a highly problematic narrative, and, and some of the things that happen in them are questionable. So let's talk about those questions, and, you know, without saying this is horrible and no one should watch it, going, hey, this is something you love, but just like if you have kids or a partner, you you critique them from a place of love. Hey, you know, your drinking's getting too hard, uh, <laughs> getting too problematic. That a nickel for every time I heard that. You know, you, you want to... Um, you say, I, I still love this thing. It's still wonderful. I hang out with it all the time, but I also recognize these are the issues in it. And so then I started writing about horror cinema. I wrote a book called Post-9-11 Horror in American Cinema, looking at how 9-11 had changed how horror actually works uh, and sort of some recurring themes there. I wrote a book about zombie movies called Back from the Dead. And uh, I became involved with the Horror Writers Association, the HWA. And some of the people there are like, why don't you write fiction? I'm like, oh, because I write plays and I write nonfiction. They're like, yeah, that you're not 
that doesn't limit you. you you're not like pick the kind of writer you are and you're done. So I was like, oh, okay. So uh, sometime around 2012, I was like, fine, I'll start writing fiction. And I began writing short stories and began selling short stories and um, have been in some prestige anthologies and shared table of contents with people like Neil Gaiman and Ramsey Campbell and Stephen King. And I'm like, oh, I'm, I'm doing okay, I guess. Um, sadly, I haven't had as much time to do that lately. I was just sitting down this morning saying, okay, I need to finish these two stories uh, that people had requested. Hey, can you write something for me? Uh, and that was back in like May. And I said, oh yeah, I'll get you something by July. And they're like, it's August. Where is it? It's September. Where is it? So now, now it has to be, but it's, it's a completely different set of muscles on the one hand. And on the other hand, as I explained, everything that I do comes back to this idea of story, comes back to this idea of how do we tell each other a narrative? How do we say, here's what happened? And in the case of like the academic stuff, it's, well, when you, if you read the same stuff that I've read, here's what happens when you watch this. Here's what happens when you read this. Here's what happens when you encounter this. Uh, and here are some ways to think about it. And then um, when I write fiction, it's sort of a, here's a story and hopefully you'll find it interesting or entertaining. And when I do a play, here's something that I hope will spark inspiration in you, but also terrify you or get you thinking, or you have all the feels. But I think I've done my job if people walk out of the theater going, we got to go somewhere and talk about that. You know, you've done a good job at creating a, piece of art or you know literature whatever whatever medium you're going through if it gets people talking and especially gets them talking about the hard questions you know and you know ha having those discussions afterward yeah part of sort of what what has also driven me uh just looking at it in retrospect i've always been a theater kid i started doing theater when i was very young uh some friends of mine and i formed a puppet company in fifth grade and our teacher was very kind every friday the last half hour of school this is in fifth grade, she would let us have to perform our play. So we would write and rehearse and perform a puppet play once a week in fifth grade, me and two friends. Uh, so, uh, and I'm still friends with them, which is, which is wonderful. But so there's always been this love of performing and this love of writing. But then the other thing that I was introduced to then in sixth grade, I think, yeah, uh, was Dungeons and Dragons. My cousins began playing it and they introduced it to me. And I, you know, I've been playing since first edition. I'm like, oh, this is a cool game. So I got the books and I started playing and started playing with friends and, and folks I met at school. And, uh, you know, it's super cool now, but this was back like in high school where you got called a nerd and they would try to wedgie you if you actually announced that you played this publicly. So I, I consider myself a brave veteran of nerd wars. Uh, <laughs> playing D&D, there was a game called Gamma World that I really got into, which is set in the distant future. And you play either a pure strain human, mutant human or mutant animal. And then there's uh, Call of Cthulhu, which came out in the early 80s. And uh, the weird thing is I got I got into Lovecraft through Call of Cthulhu, not the other way around. I didn't know about Lovecraft until Call of Cthulhu and started playing that game. I'm like, well, I should read this Lovecraft guy. And right now I'm actually working on a book on Lovecraft and the stage because recently there have been a huge number of Lovecraftian adaptations. And it turns out Lovecraft himself was a huge fan of the theater. He loved Shakespeare. He loved Eugene O'Neill. He lived in New York for a few years and would go to see plays on Broadway so, I mean, he's highly problematic. He's an avowed racist. He's an anti-Semite and he's highly problematic for a whole bunch of reasons. But he also is responsible for modern horror in many ways. He sort of really changed from the Gothic to the contemporary and the cosmic. And he's a huge theater guy. So I'm like, no one ever talks about that. So let's play with that. So serving as a DM, a GM, a keeper, whatever you want to call it, the person who runs the game, uh, because all role-playing games are is collective storytelling with dice. Uh, we're going to tell a story mm -hmm. together. And then we're going to have, uh, I love this phrase. I can't remember what book is from. The collective memory of imagined events. 
that when you sit around with your friends, if you play role-playing games, you're like, dude, remember that time the dwarf took on the ogre? Oh my God, I thought he was dead. And you're like, people were listening to you going, when did that happen? You're like, oh, in a game five years ago. It never happened in real life, but it happened to us. So we have this collective memory of imagined events. And I, I appreciate that that notion of we are telling a story together and that story somehow is now real for us. Even though we know it's not real in the real world, we have the memory of the events that we of the story we told each other and it stays with us. Just like we have memories of movies that, you know, Captain Kirk is not real, but man, a lot of people out there know his life story and value him as a human being. Well, Spock even more, let's be honest. Spock <laughs> That's my job is is to serve as a DM in the theater, a DM in the library, create worlds in which people then get to play characters and make decisions and roll the dice. So when you typically have your uh, your DM hat on, then how how do you balance the trying to create constraints in the world that you've generated versus allowing your players or your you know your actors to have their own free will in their decision making? and you know trying to roll with that yeah that that's a great question um i think being a dm really influenced me as a director and how i became a director and as much as just like no battle plan survives contact with the enemy no script survives contact with the actors no module survives contact with the players that you carefully plan all this stuff out and you show up on the first day and go okay this and they're like uh okay we light torches and go into that other hole. And you're like, no, you're not supposed to go in there. And like, that's where we <laughs> want to go. And so sometimes it's about making it up on the fly. But I, rather than get frustrated, I discovered, no, this is collaborative storytelling. So if that's where they want to go, my job is to then expand the grid, so to speak, and give them stuff to do there. That part of my job might be, well, you actually have to get on this quest over here. But I, I mentioned earlier, I have young children. And just this past summer, we started playing D&D because my wife and I play oh. with friends. And the kids are like, what are you guys doing? We, those dice are so cool. We want to play. So I had them create characters. And they skipped most of the dungeon. Like, they found the direct route through. And I was like, there's all this other stuff that you guys missed. And they're like, yeah, but we got out and we had money and we lived. It's like, yeah. I mean, you missed out on some of the fun. But congratulations, you now have, you know, magic items and money and you've leveled up. So let's, let's go on to the next adventure. And the next adventure, they nearly died on the first encounter. Like the oh. dice were just not on their side and they had to run out of the dungeon. I'm like, okay, then go back to, you know, the city and, and heal your wounds and figure out what you did wrong. But the funny thing is they didn't do anything wrong. It was just the dice. So part of it is that, that notion of your job is not to push the, the actors or the players into what you want but rather you've created a if you're doing it right you've created a world in which they feel free to play the role and imagine themselves richly in this world and make choices that are sometimes better when, than what the dungeon master would have come up with now sometimes it's hack and slash sometimes you just screw in with friends we have beer we have dnd and you walk into a cavern there's a giant altar with a goblin skull on it i take the skull as a souvenir and you're like oh okay it's going to be one of those games Roll initiative. Um, yeah. But then like the, the game we played during the pandemic, where for me, the pleasure of it as a longtime player was watching these college students who were encountering this game as part of a play that we had started and couldn't do because of, of COVID start to get together on Zoom once a week and play is how emotionally attached they became to this group. And when when a character would die, or in this case, an elephant would die, the oh, heartbreak gosh. was real. And like people were like, can we stop playing right now? I need to process my grief. And they were serious. 
that the emotions were real because this, you know, we had invested time and effort into telling the story together and these characters were important. And so they were excited when they, you know, almost lost, but just barely won and emerged triumphant and were heartbroken when, when there was actual loss. And so it, it, you know, to me, that's sort of the best of what this is, is we're collaboratively creating. This is what drives Plato crazy in the Republic. Plato, I'm sure, would not allow D&D either because it's something that's <laughs> completely fake that, that creates real emotions, that creates real thoughts. Truth cannot come some, from something false, says Plato. D&D is completely false, and yet we have true experiences based on it. So that's a very long and roundabout way of answering your question. But the answer is, if I'm creating a world, uh, then whatever they do is right. And then I'm the one who then has to adjust. Now, I can make suggestions, and I, I think uh, Kylie can attest to this firsthand, where I say, what, do you, what does your character want to do? I want to do this. Okay, you can do that, but here are the ramifications of that choice. Here are some other choices. Whatever you do will be the right choice, but feel free to explore the other ones if you want to go a different direction. And that's also in theater why we rehearse, and in D&D why we sometimes, the D&D will fudge, the, the, the DM will fudge the dice, or we'll say, you know what, let's... Let's backtrack. Let's go back to Salt Marsh and rethink this one. <laughs> yeah. Well, you mentioned collaboration a lot. That was yeah. a word that just kept hitting me over and over. And the beginning phase of your storytelling, whether you're writing a RPG to play or you're writing a fiction or nonfiction, you're writing alone. So how is yeah. that process different for you than like the rehearsal <laughs> when you're with people finally? Well, it, okay, there, there are sort of two different things there. One, um, even when you're writing alone, you're writing with other people in mind. You're trying to imagine yourself in the audience's position. So, for example, with with The Haunting of Hannon, um, it's one of these things where I'm like, oh, okay, I've got, I've got four minutes and a $50 budget, uh, you know, per scene, <laughs> and this, that, the other thing. How do I make this effective? And I try to imagine how the audience will encounter this. And sometimes solutions will come up in rehearsal you know sometimes when i'm writing a script i'll be like we'll figure it out because I, I off the top of my head i don't know how to make this happen but i want it to happen so we'll figure it out in the rehearsal room or one of the tech guys will, you know rob will come in and go oh just put a doorbell there I'm like oh i never even thought of that simple solution you know people come up with solutions that are so elegant and fun so the the you try to imagine the audience try and put yourself in the place and what will surprise them what will mm. what will make them afraid and the danger is because fear and 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 laughter are so close to each other. Some people laugh when they're afraid, but also, you know, you've uh, we've all watched scary movies that actually aren't that scary. So you laugh because of how dumb, you know, the monster pops up and you're like, that's stupid. And you <laughs> chuckle. And so that's that's every horror nightmare, you know, horror maker's nightmare is that your monster, your scare moment is not scary, it's funny. And then learning how to negotiate that as well, that okay, then if it's going to be funny, then make it funny, but make it disturbingly funny. Kylie, chew your hair and stare at the camera. And people are then laughing, but they're like, after a while, that gets really creepy. <laughs> and so you can you can find ways to turn things. The audience is the one thing, however, that you can never, ever rehearse. On the, um, We did a scene with, there was this guy playing Don't Fear the Reaper really slow on the acoustic guitar. And on the table behind him was a young woman dressed all in black, in full Dia de los Muertos makeup, surrounded by Santos candles, all lit. And he's playing Don't Fear the Reaper very slowly. And the direction was, the audience will come in, pick one person, and just stare at them while you sing. And then the woman in back, about halfway through the song, would just sit up, turn to the audience, fixate on one guy in the audience, and start going, love me. And, and you would see that she had like a bullet hole in her forehead with dried blood, 
and she would start moving towards him and he'd stand up and as the guitar moved you'd see there was a gun on his hip and he would say darling this is how we got in trouble in the first place and then he'd look at the audience and say time you moved on and people would be like really disturbed by the slow guitar playing by this thing sitting up and by the implication of domestic violence and murder uh and she would come over and then like hug him and they'd smile and kiss so there was this sort of happy ending of sorts but it was the whole thing was meant to be disturbing 99 times out of 100 incredibly effective people walked out going that was so creepy that's going to haunt me tonight this one time the young woman that he's singing to is staring at him and having a hard time focusing about halfway through the song at a quiet moment she goes dude you're too hot and i'm too high this isn't gonna work and she walks out and the whole audience just burst into laughter and the actors oh, are like well no. we're not we can't come back from that like there's no way to get yeah. back that scary mood <laughs> So goodbye, folks. Thanks for coming. Oh, my gosh. Hopefully no one else that high will come through again. But this year, you know, and again, we know that we have people coming through. It's become this big thing on campus. People come all four years to see it. So this year we began with, uh, we always try to change the route for some surprises. So this year people walked in the library. They get in the elevator and they go up to the third floor. And when the doors open, there are two druids standing there. Young women uh, in, uh, you know, floor-length brown robes with black stripes painted across their eyes and designs on their faces and burning candles and a big bowl of candy corn. And they're like, you should not have come here tonight. And people didn't want to get out of the elevator. In fact, um, perhaps my favorite moment of last year, which is when this happened, is uh, I'm standing around the corner just to listen into it. Uh, and this was like the second run. Listen to hear. I hear the elevator doors open and I just hear this voice go, oh crap, it's already started. <laughs> uh, they, they, you know it's like oh we're already we're already going into this now and they 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 started this thing now where they're interviewing people as they leave to ask you know what was good what was your favorite moment and most of the people reported yeah this was actually really scary like there were educational moments there were moments where we learned about filipino fairies but the banshee the guy in the basement puck that was messed up man and so cool so you try to anticipate what's going to be effective, what's going to be scary. You try to challenge your designers. One of the things I came up with is this character holds a jar full of fireflies. And Aww. so Johnny's like, how do I do that? And he got a jar and he got a string of Christmas lights and sort of fogged the jar and put the Christmas lights in it. And they were operating on a battery. So you see these lights blinking on and off in the jar. And in the dark of the basement of the library, it looks like a jar full of moving fireflies. I would have never come up with that on my own. I just told him he had to he had to create this somehow. So part of the fun is also giving other artists a fun task to solve, a problem, a challenge, come up with how we do this. And they will always come back with, okay, I have an idea. And nine times out of 10, it's so effective and so fun. So the sometimes it's it's convincing your actors, trust me, this will work. And they're like, I, I don't, I don't trust me. And there are other times when the actor's like, I don't think this is gonna work. And I'm like, if you don't think it's going to work, it's not going to work. You have to make it work. So I, I, at this point in my career, I know when something will work, regardless if an actor thinks they can do it or not, or if it requires the actor committing to it. And if they won't, then we have to change it. And then after that, it's up to the audience. So That just reminded me of the various times that I've worked with you. You always had either like just suggestions I never would have thought of, or I would come to you with something where I'm like, I'm going to try something crazy. I don't know, chew on my hair for half an hour on camera. And, you know, it. maybe it'll work. Maybe it won't. But the answer, you... And the answer was always. Yes. Do it. Yes. And yeah. Yes. Do it. Let's see what it is. Let's see how it works. And yeah. then sometimes you get back. 
don't just chew on the hair. Sometimes pretend it's a mustache. Keep going. And yes. there you go. We inspire each other and come up with effects that are so simple and yet so incredibly powerful. And the audience sort of doesn't pick up on that, but they, there's a process behind it where you get to the point of, okay, now it works. But it takes weeks of experimentation to get that right. The the It's William Gillette who says, theater is the illusion of the first time. We do something over and over and over again to make it seem like we've never done it before. And in order to get there, there, you know, the other phrase that I love to use is make believe is a lot of hard work. It really is. And that kind of wants me to lead into your, your acting career. So sure. you said you started with your puppet career at, in fifth grade. Yeah. Where did you go from there? I mean, you didn't doing, become a puppeteer. Doing, I know your wife puppeteers. She's but... a puppeteer. Yes. Uh, her, her, uh, her puppet chip has an Instagram account and they're quite lovely. You should check it out. Well, from there, I, I I did school plays, you know, the hillbillies and the robots. I did youth theater. Uh, there was a theater in my hometown where uh, junior high school kids were putting on uh, plays based on fairy tales. So I did that a few times and that was fun. And then when I got in high school, I joined the drama group and we were doing musicals. And, and my high school also had a one act festival every fall where each class would put on a play and it was a competition. Uh, and my class was the first freshman class to win it ever. Uh, it was the first time the first year students won. So we were quite proud of that and also under death threat from the seniors. Um, <laughs> oh, boy. So from there, I, I started doing a lot of theater and I went off to college. And I, I've, I've loved Shakespeare ever since I was eight years old. True story. Long, I'm not going to get into my sordid history. I got to ask, though, what's your gateway show? What Shakespeare show was like your... It wasn't a show. I read the play Julius Caesar. Oh, uh, interesting. As an and when this is cool that's impressive as an eight-year-old to it was impressive and weird it was i was a weird <laughs> kid i still need the the little translations on the side just to even oh, yeah i did, I did Shakespearean too work so i don't so i don't hear like eight anymore, years old but I, at eight I, I needed them and i'm sure i didn't get a lot of it but I'm, I'm just sort of reading it and going to my father with questions and you know voracious reader from a very early age i taught myself to read at age three because uh, I would see wow. my parents read, and I'm like, I want to do that too. So I'm sounding out words, and uh, the other kids are doing book reports on, on you know, uh, My Little Pony, and I'm like, I think I want to read The Scarlet Letter. And my teacher's like, that's a little advanced for you. I was like, okay, I'll do Julius Caesar. Um, so I started <laughs> reading Shakespeare. I loved Macbeth. Uh, you know, I, I love the plays that had big, meaty roles. And in high school, I read Titus Andronicus, so I'm reading Shakespeare going along. And I got my first professional acting gig when I was 18 at uh, New Haven Shakespeare on the Green, playing curio in a production of 12th night so it's me and all these professional actors i had four lines and i'm like this is so cool and i'm hanging out with these adults it was also sort of one of the saddest moments of, of my then young career where i show up you know we show up for the read through and the woman playing mariah is sitting next to me uh, and we read through the play and i'm puckish and amusing you know i'm cracking jokes and i was like oh this kid's funny and so she turns to me at the end of it and goes you want to go for a drink and i was like oh i'd love to but i'm 18 and she goes oh you want to go for ice cream? And I'm like, you just made it worse. Just, <laughs> let's let's go to a diner, anything else, but ice cream. Uh, and yes, yes, I do want to go for ice cream. Is it your treat? Because I can't drive my, no. It was, so it was, it was a great experience. I got to meet all these cool people. It was a lot of fun. And I went off to college and I did Strindberg. At the end of my freshman year, I went back to my hometown and I said, um, we have this theater in our central park and we're not really using it for anything. You do like a jazz concert on the 4th of July. So give me that theater for the summer and I'll do a, I'll create a Shakespeare festival. And they're like, what do you mean? I'm like, well, I'm a professional actor. I was just in Shakespeare on the Green in New Haven last year. 
So this summer, give me money and give me the support and let me have the park and I'll create a Shakespeare festival. And now I was at the time I was 18. I think I might have just turned 19 when I made this proposal to the town council. And by all rights, they should have said no. They should have laughed me out of there. And instead they said, as so often happens in my life, go on. Uh, and so I, they gave me $10,000 and the space. And we did Midsummer Night Stream and uh, for our first show. And the funny thing is they made this big announcement. We're doing Shakespeare in Treasure Park. It's a new Shakespeare festival that the town is sponsoring. And uh, I get this call from this guy who, uh, I'm Kevin Jr. So half the time when the, the, this is back in the 80s, so the wall phone would ring. Um, they would ask for Kevin and my mom would give it to my father. And my father was like, I think you want my son and gives it to me. I'm like, hello, hello, Kevin. My name is Larry. Uh, I've designed on Broadway. I'm retired. I live in Cheshire now. Uh, do you have a designer for your show yet? I'm like, no, but you design on Broadway. And he's like, yes. I'm like, I'm 18. He goes, are you the artistic director? I said, yes. He said, are you the director of the show? I said, yes. Then your age is irrelevant. How do you have a designer yet? And he was wonderful and taught me a lot. And it's one of these things where I was like, okay, I'm going to call the local scaffold company because Larry's like, we need lighting trees. I'm like, okay. So I call up the local scaffolding company. I'm like, we'll give you free advertising. You can put up a sign in the park if you give us free scaffolds to use for lighting trees and, and for tech support. So they lent us uh, $30,000 worth of scaffolding all summer long for free. And this continued for the next three years until I left for England. And it kept going for like three more years after that. And then he stopped doing Shakespeare and started doing musicals. But, you know, I, I at age 19, I was the artistic director of a Shakespeare festival in my hometown doing two shows every summer. Holy and cow. Then, uh, yeah. And wow. again, I should have been told no every step of the way. No one should have let me do this. But it's one of those things where if if you do your research, if if you present yourself like you know what you're doing, and you have any sort of credibility, people are like, yeah, okay, go ahead. So, uh, you know, I started a Shakespeare company when I was doing graduate school in Pittsburgh. Uh, started Shakespeare on the Bluff at LMU, went to the dean and said, give me money and we'll we'll do Shakespeare here. And we'll go down to Playa Vista and we'll perform there too. And the people in Playa Vista were like, cool, what do you need? And I've discovered, you know, a lot of times people will say no when you propose stuff. But sometimes if you have something that people are like, oh, that'd be cool. How do we help? What do you need? And if you don't actually need that much, cool. Yeah, we'd love to have you do that. So we're now in our sixth year of Shakespeare on the Bluff, 11th year of Haunting of Hannon. Uh, I just heard that the theater that I started in Cheshire is doing something next summer now. So for me, that's the fun of it is having this idea of it would be cool to do this and getting enough people to buy in. My wife sometimes describes me as a Kermit. She's like, you're this crazy organized frog that gets all these <laughs> other people to buy into the thing, you know, and do it. So uh, I think we all need so a Kermit that... in the theater industry out of when there's so many creatives, like you need yeah. somebody who says, I'm going to make it happen. Pew, 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 pew. And it brings mm -hmm. everything together. So long as you don't try to do it all yourself. So long as, as, as you say, I'm going to make it happen and I need you and you and you, <laughs> and you got to be this, a good delegator. Like, cool. I'll do it. And you get people who get excited to do it. You know, there are a lot of people who are willing to act and you say, look, I'm happy to have you act. I just need a couple hours of your time to help build the set once we're ready to. And most people are like, yeah, I'll show up Saturday and paint, a, you know, paint a set or whatever. Cool. And so, you know, it's for me, it's immensely gratifying, you know, to, to look at a show at Shakespeare on the Bluff or at the Haunting of Hannon or the other things that I do and just go, I made that happen. Like that did not exist six months ago. And now it's a thing that 100 people are involved in and hundreds, if not thousands of people are seeing because I had an idea. So that's, you know, without getting egotistical, that's that's sort of the fun. So going all the way back to your original question, I did a lot of acting, especially when I was younger. Uh, went to England, I did a lot of acting there. I did a lot of acting in Pittsburgh, did a lot of classical acting, but I also 
again, 40 years and, and 30 pounds ago, played Dr. Frank in Rocky Horror uh, in England and again in Pittsburgh. I've done a lot of weird avant-garde stuff, uh, some stuff here in town. When I first moved to L.A., I was doing a lot of indie features, a lot of low-budget horror. I've been killed by zombies, by werewolves, by uh, serial killers. I've been a medieval knight who was reincarnated as a supermodel. Uh, I can always tell when one of my films has been on the Sci-Fi Channel because a student will come in and be like, we saw you last night. I'm like, 2 a.m. Sci-Fi Channel? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> how did I, Tell me how I died, and I'll tell you which film it is. Uh, that's so, so cool but i got to work with danny trejo i got to work with um the the voice actor who does the emperor on star wars um clone wars which was cool i was like dude i know your work this is awesome so i got to work with norman reedus back, back before walking dead so i was never a star i never did anything huge but i did enough stuff that like this is going to pay my mortgage for this month or you know and, and doing plays around town so i enjoy acting it's fun I, before i had kids i used to do a lot of stand-up but now I'm much more into the writing and directing, and that's, I find it to be much more gratifying, although I just played Falstaff this summer in Merry Wives of Windsor, and then I played Duncan in the Scottish play, and uh, my daughter's name is Cordelia, and she's seven years old, so I keep telling her, in nine more years, we're doing King Lear. You'll play your character, and I'll play the title role. So acting was like your gateway into this whole other world of artistry that yeah. was opened up to you the older you got. Because like an yeah. artist, you know, they go through so many phases. You could do, do. artistry for forever. You just got to keep discovering different mm -hmm. things that you enjoy. And sure. one thing that you, I want to circle back to. So you had so many like, okay, go on moments. But what <laughs> were some challenges that you've had in your career? Some maybe cool. no's or some didn't work out quite the way well, you there, wanted there are, it to. There are tons of no's. There's um, all the way back in uh, 2003, 2004, uh, I'd been working in a theater called the LA Connection and I was doing a lot of stand up and I had met some folks and uh, a writer that I had worked with who had turned into a producer wanted to produce a show that he asked me to write. He's like, I want you to, you know, the election's coming up. I want you to write a political satire. So I wrote a, a political satire, and all these jokes are dated now, called uh, John Ashcroft Explains It All for You. And John Ashcroft at the time had been a senator from Missouri who lost uh, his election to uh, the Democrats who had nominated a guy who then died. So he lost his election to a dead man. And then Bush had made him his first attorney general. And he insisted, like, Ashcroft was this extreme conservative who insisted the Greek statues in, in the Department of Justice be covered up because there should be no naked breasts in the Department of Justice. And like, dude, it's a classical statue. And they would have these press conferences that showed him to be not necessarily super bright. So I'm like, oh, we have to we have to have fun with this. Uh, and I wrote a show called um, John Ashcroft Explains It All for You. The big final scene was the, the Democratic nominating convention uh, because Barry White had just died. We should nominate someone that that um, a lot of people would vote for. Let's nominate Barry White. And they're like, oh, he just died. Uh, yeah, but D John Ashcroft loses against dead people, so it's okay. Well, then we need to nominate a vice president that's older and more experienced, older and more experienced at being dead. Yeah, like Marvin Gaye. Yeah, Barry White and Marvin Gaye should be our ticket in 2004. And then one of the other characters is like, no, because then the bumper stickers will say white and gay in 2004. And do you think anyone's going to vote for that? And it devolved into all sorts of silliness. And it was brilliant and it was wonderful. And he couldn't raise the money. And I'm like, dude, I spent months writing this thing. And it was brilliant. This was going to be my big breakthrough. A few years later, I was cast in a, uh, a sort of mockumentary called Zen and the Art of Yard Sailing. And it's about these two guys who every weekend go around to yard sales. This is how they make their living because eBay was still kind of new. They go to yard sales, buy stuff, fix it and sell it on eBay for like three times what they paid for it. 
And so it was this documentary crew following them around. But the way that they did it is me and the other actor uh, were named Buck and Lance. They would film us at actual yard. We'd go to actual yard sales and interact with people in character. And like he was the shy one and I'm the obnoxious one. That tracks in, in yeah. a positive way. You know, you've yeah. got like the, the well, it's things where someone would stand, would turn to me and be like, how much is this code? I'm like, oh, this ain't my yard sale. And I'd never buy anything like that. Oh, it looked good on you, though. And, you know, <laughs> then the PAs would run over and be like, would you sign this release? We're making a documentary about these two professional, you know, resellers. And they would interview us. And again, it's it's all improv in the moment. And the whole idea is that my character is the one who's Zen. He's like, you know, I'm a Zen Buddhist, you know, and Buddhism teaches you the four noble truths, which are life is suffering. Get the best bargain you can. All right. Wash the clothes before you wear. Like Buddha teaches you all this stuff, man. Uh, or say, th- you know, and I would say things, I'd meet someone at a yard sale and, and be negotiating to buy something. They'll be like, I can't go lower than 10 bucks. You know, I got inner peace because I'm a Buddhist, but right now the Buddha's telling me to punch you in the face, man. That's just not cool. That is not cool. And <laughs> they'd be like, I, I'm, I'm sorry. And then afterwards, they, you know, they would be like, I'm like, I'm so sorry. I'm an actor. I'm in character. I'm just screwing with you. It's, it's fine. But you'd get their honest reactions to me being this sort of very abrasive Buddhist. And we, you know, the every, so every weekend at 4 a.m. I had to go to the studio every weekend for like eight weeks in a row. Our call times were 4 a.m. on Saturday and Sunday. So we could get there, get in costume, get in the van because the yard sales start at 7 a.m. And they're like, we have from basically seven to noon to film you guys. And so they got something like 400 hours of footage over the course of it. Because then there were other things that we did where uh, I, I ran like a Buddhist meditation group for yard sailors. So. And the funny thing is, all the people in that were the people who had auditioned for my part and didn't get it. So it's all these guys who kind of look like me and we're all sitting around. And they, because I was cast, they vaguely resented me anyway. So they're like, you don't like this guy, but want to learn from him because he does oh what you do, gosh. but better. And so That's we're all so kinda... well cast of them. Like, it, here. it was so smart. So the whole point is, this is this was going to be my breakthrough thing. I'm like, if this gets out there and it gets a few you know, festival things, this might push me up into like great representation getting out there and uh they uh they never finished editing it the guys who made it like got an on another project and never went back to it every two or three years i get an email saying hey as soon as we get the chance we're going to go back and edit this footage and i'm like guys it's it's 17 years old like who wants to see that like all the references are out of date it's but it broke my heart because it's one of the best things i ever did i was so proud of that work there are also moments along the way where I was at a workshop or I was performing stand-up and I was invited to do something and I was like, no, I'm cool. And in hindsight, I went, I should have gone. I should have done that because that would have taken, actually, that would have been a smart career move. You know, when yeah. I was I was at the National Stage Combat Workshop back in 2000 and one of the fight masters, a guy I admired for years, we were all sort of in the cafeteria having lunch and he comes down and sits next to me. We start talking, we're having a really good talk and he's like, oh. So do you want to, you know, is it your hope someday to be a fight master? Do you want to learn to train? Do you want to take it to the next level? And foolish me being honest, I'm like, yeah, but I do a lot of other things. And I know to be a fight master, that like that really has to be your focus. And that's the only thing you do. So I'd be content to be a certified teacher. You know, I, I just want to be kind of at the level of matter just a little bit above. It's like, good, thanks. And walked away. And like later that day, I was like, he was asking if I wanted to take it to, he wanted to train me. He wanted me to commit yeah. to. Damn it! Because 
the other thing that happens in my life, if I might be so bold, and I'm feeling so egotistical having this whole conversation about me. No, um, you're good. That's the whole that. point of the it's, conversation for uh, interviewing you. Is half the time when good things have happened to me, half the time when, when things happen, it's because I no one who tells me no, who should have told me no, tells me no. Instead, I'm like, I'm going to start a Shakespeare festival. Give me a Shakespeare festival. Okay. I'm going to start a Shakespeare festival here. Give me a Shakespeare festival. Okay. Or someone comes to me and says, hey, do you want to do this? I was like, I didn't until you asked me, but now I do. What are we doing? And so things sometimes, when I was in grad school, I was called into my mentor's office. And at that time, I was studying African theater, Shakespeare, and Japanese theater. Those were my three major areas. So my Japanese mentor calls me in and goes, when are you leaving? I'm like, Le leaving for what? He goes, I completely forgot to tell you. We got a Toshiba Foundation grant and selected you. To, we'll fund a research trip to Japan for the summer. And I was like, Oh, I yeah, I didn't know that. Well, I was just cast in a Shakespeare show, and I'm hearing myself say this out loud, and I go, I'm leaving in June. He's like, well, we'll handle all the arrangements. Tell us. And I'm like, say yes, just say yes to this. Don't come up with reasons why you can't go. Go to Japan for three months. And again, it was life-changing when, when I had the opportunity to go to Africa, when I, had, when I was working in England, and someone said, hey, come do this. Okay, yeah. And inevitably, I end up, you know, when I, when I I went to England to study Shakespeare and ended up studying African and Japanese theater there. Like, that's the other thing of my life is it's nothing but accidents and mistakes that work out incredibly well. I went to England and I uh, I'm, I, I show up at the University of Leeds. Uh, I'm like, hey, I'm, I, I want to start the MA here. You know, I'm really into Shakespeare. And they're like, oh, our Shakespeare is on sabbatical. What else can you do? I'm like, what else can I do? Like, what else is there? And they're like, oh, well, we do, you know, and they list the you know, British political theater and community-based theater. We also do African theater and Japanese theater. I'm like, Japanese theater, like Kabuki? And they're like, no, modern theater. I'm like, Japan has a modern theater? And they're like, you're so American. <laughs> but I started studying modern Japanese theater in England under uh, Masako Yuasa. And I started studying African theater under Martin Bannum. And I'm like, I had no idea that any of this stuff existed. This is so exciting. And just that alone changed the entire course of my life. And I ended up studying with Dennis Brutus, who's this South African poet who was like Nelson Mandela's cellmate for several years and was booted oh out of South Africa and taught at the university of pittsburgh and i was like you know excuse me professor brutus you know i just want to i want to talk to you about african theater and i know you that you know and he's like so long as we play chess together I'm like what he's like i want to play chess no one plays chess with me if you play chess we'll talk about theater while we play chess so I'm like we will play chess then sir and we kept playing chess and talking about african theater and he turned out to be a major influence on my life as well. So I've been fortunate in that. And I found a, a large number of mentors and a lot of people who just by asking them, hey, can I learn from you? Can I study with you? Opened so many doors. And so at this point, any any good things that I have come from standing on the shoulders of giants that, you know, I became interested in horror. I joined an organization and immediately sort of fell in with the people who run that organization and who were like, hey, you're cool and you're kind. And why don't you come and play with us? And now it's it's just fun that there are people out there whose work I was reading in high school who I'm now Facebook friends with. And when I see them at cons, they're like, hey, Kevin. And I'm like, Joe R. Lansdale just said hi to me. Brian Keene knows my name. This is so cool. Uh, and I can't help but geek out at these things. Um, so it's just, it's I, I have been very fortunate. I have been very blessed. Uh, I have been very privileged. Let's call it what it is. I, I have a lot of privilege and that has allowed me to do a lot of the things that I've been able to do. And for me, the joy of that is as a professor, I get to open all these doors for my students and encourage them to run through and travel further than I have. As Master Yoda reminds us, we are what they exceed. 
It is your hope that your students go farther and do better than you ever did and create absolutely wonderful and fun things. In fact, I was just, I'm doing a student film this month from a student who I had as a freshman in a horror theater class. who's like, I really want you to play the professor in my movie. So I'm like, yeah, cool. And I, I love when moments like that happen where someone who I taught now wants to work with me uh, on a thesis or professionally. The person who directed Macbeth is a student I've known at Macbeth. I've known at LMU since her freshman year and uh, brought her into the world of stage combat. And now she's a professional actor and a teacher and professional director and stage combat choreographer on her own. She was the president of the Dueling Arts International. Like she's, she, I taught her stage. I was the first one to teach her stage combat and now she outranks me and I love it. That's what you want to see. I feel like I should have had a notepad for all that, like taking <laughs> notes. <laughs> it seems like you have lived a life that most people would just kind of dream about. And honestly, I loved hearing about your, uh, um, was it your experience with studying Japanese literature yes. and uh, and theater? And I mean, like that kind of explains how the, the uh, Japanese uh, reading you gave, gave yes. us earlier. I'm, uh, I'm thinking a lot in Japanese lately because I'm teaching a course in Japanese. Uh, it's called Japanese Theater and a Film, where we look at indigenous and traditional plays from Japan, and then we look at films influenced by them. So I've been watching a lot of Japanese cinema in the past month and uh, teaching this course this past week, and it's using all that Japanese language. I'm just back in the mindset. It's it's fun. If we had been, um, if I had been teaching my African course, I probably would have greeted you in either Kiswahili or Isizulu or something. I, I'm very jealous about that. I tried teaching myself Japanese like all last year. Didn't really have much of an opportunity to use it, though. I think there's a couple more questions uh, we, we definitely want to hit on. Actually, there was one I was genuinely curious about with you. Just sure. kind of so scanning your room a bit there. I hope you don't mind. <laughs> uh, I can see. So it looks like uh, so you, you have a Christian background, at least. I do. And so that makes me want to ask a question I've actually been genuinely kind of curious about, too, which is. Being both a Christian and a, a huge fan of horror fiction, the whole horror genre, how do you reconcile both worlds in, in that case? Because I feel like the the go-to uh, belief is that the two worlds don't typically mix well. Um, and nothing could be further from the truth. And so I'd love to hear your opinion on that. Sure, sure, sure. Well, let, let's let's get specific here um, in a couple of different ways. One, I'm specifically, I'm Catholic. Uh, and it makes it a lot easier to be a horror fan when you're Catholic because, you know, the exorcist, demonology. The, in fact, the crucifix is here and all these books in front of it uh, is my, are my theology books. And there's a number of books at the bottom here. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven books about horror cinema and Christianity. Uh, and I've written, I've contributed to a number of books like Horror and Theology, Wes Craven and Theology, Zombies and Theology, looking oh. at the intersection of religious faith, religious belief, and the tropes of horror culture. Uh, and so, uh, as someone who has more degrees than a thermometer, none in anything useful, one of those degrees is uh, a master's of theology. In fact, I wrote a book about the theology of Battlestar Galactica, the TV series, because there are so many important theological themes in that work. I'm like, I have to do this. And so, in terms of horror, I, I, I recognize the concern about allowing evil into your life and opening yourself up to darkness and all that. But the the funny thing about a lot of scholars is they're looking at it going, when you look at it, sort of the first horror book ever is the Bible. You've got witches, you've got yeah. demons, you've got all these horrible things happening in it. You've got executions, you've got the body destroyed. There's there's quite a bit of horror to be found within Christian narratives themselves. Um, Jonathan Mayberry, the New York Times bestselling author, who I'm a big fan of, um, put it best because his father was the head of the KKK in Pennsylvania. 
And he is so not that. He's the exact opposite of that. And he's like growing up with a person that I kind of hated. He was my father and I hated him because of what he was. Taught me that there are monsters in the world and there are monster slayers. And we don't go to horror because we support the monsters. Mm. We don't go to horror going, man, I hope Jason gets those kids. Man, I hope those kids get slaughtered. Yes, we might be there to see the interesting deaths. But the whole point is, it's about the guys fighting the monsters. It's about how we resist the monsters. And isn't that what Christianity literally is all about? Resisting evil and, and fighting for good? Horror is the one film genre that actually commits to what Christianity claims. Supernatural evil is real. And it is out there. And it is a force. You're not seeing that in your mainstream, you know, dramatic narratives, but The Exorcist is a film that says the devil is real, evil is real, demons are real, and clergy can fight it, and prayer can fight it. Now, there's certainly a lot of nihilistic horror out there, there's a lot of atheistic horror out there, there's a lot of horror that exists just for purient reasons. No one comes out of a Serbian film or I spit on your grave going, man, that gave me a lot to think about. Time to reflect on my prayer life. That's not going to happen. But at the same time, there are a number of horror movies that I watched. I'm like, this raises important theological questions. This raises important issues about what it means to be human. And the very idea that monsters are real immediately starts questioning, okay, what is the difference between monster and human? We certainly see this, for example, in uh, George Romero's zombie films, that we move very quickly from them to those things. Those things out there, and you're like, those are those used to be people. They're living, breathing, and now they're zombies. But, dude, that's your sister. No, it's a thing. And immediately the language shifts, and you start thinking about, okay, we can talk about what it means to be human. But we can also talk about how this film shows in a way that doesn't challenge you overtly, but the dangers of thinking of the other, the people mm -hmm. who are not like me, who are therefore judged. And so a lot of, I think a lot of horror out there creates what the Japanese call mitate, distance. And this is, this is, I'm going all sorts of places here, but just go with me on this. Uh, right. um, I'm tracking you. Don't worry. There are only two films that were made about 9-11, the actual experience of 9-11. And that's United 93 and uh, Oliver Stone's uh, World Trade Center, both of which were commercial and critical flops. Nobody wanted to go see movies about 9-11. And both yeah. of those films, by the way, are the only ones that present heroic stories. Nicolas Cage is a firefighter who runs into the burning building to save people. United 93, the plane that the passengers brought down so it didn't crash into the Capitol or the White House or whatever. There were heroic narratives of 9-11 and no one wanted to see that. What were the big movies after 9-11? Cloverfield, The War of the Worlds. You know, movies about New York being destroyed. Movies about people having to face these incredible monsters and not knowing how to deal with it. Suddenly found footage explodes everywhere. We see films that are full of uh, people running away from things. And we see movies about people flying up into the air or being dropped down to the ground. And that's because we sublimated 9-11 into horror cinema. And horror cinema said, actually, here's the best example of this. Before 9-11, there were maybe a dozen or so shows about ghost hunting on television. Mm -hmm. Within the first five or six years after 9-11, there were over 300. Why? Two reasons. One... Ghost hunting shows say the supernatural is real, that we survive, that there is life after death. And isn't that comforting? 3,000 souls died within you know seconds, terribly painfully. But guess what? Life goes on and they're still out there. That wasn't the end of life. That was the beginning of the, their afterlife. But the other thing that these shows, shows, shows tell us is there are always mysteries, right? We're here. We're plumbers during the day. But at night, we investigate ghosts. And we're here at this house where this girl died. And they're investigating. And they're like, oh, we think she was killed by her uncle. 
And that's why she's haunting it, because she needs justice. And what all these shows say, therefore, is the dead cry out for justice, that there's an unresolved issue here that the dead are still lingering about to get justice for. And after 9-11, when America's all, who wants some? Come at me, brah. Yeah, the ghost narratives tell us that. Our dead demand justice. Our dead demand vengeance. Our dead are out because they want. And lastly, the ghost as terrorist. There are ghosts in this house, and they're not Casper. They're not just making noise. They are out to scare you and terrify you and drive you away. And so the smart thing to do is investigate and then get rid of them. So ghost shows alone are telling us a lot about where we stood right after 9-11. Hmm. So for me, it's it we're about to play and talk about werewolves. You know, the everyone's like, werewolves are about the beast within. No, they're not. The beast within is just the only obvious thing. When you look at other werewolf narratives, they're almost always about uh, some larger sociophobic, which is an academic word, uh, meaning the thing that scares society. So you couldn't mm -hmm. have a film like Dog Soldiers, which is about um, English soldiers in Scotland on, an, on a mission being attacked by werewolves before the war in Iraq. You could not have um, the howling in an American werewolf in London until the middle of the 1980s because they're, they're, they're dealing with very specific 80s issues. So uh, Ginger Snaps, My Mom's a Werewolf, Howling to Your Sister is a Werewolf, all dealing with, you know, sort of post-fourth wave feminist issues through werewolves. So yeah. horror is almost never about the thing itself. It's also always about what scares us, not individually, spiders, snakes, sharks, but what scares us collectively, which is why, hence in the book 9-11, 9-11 um, changes horror. All horror suddenly becomes about the things that scared us on 9-11 and get filtered through that experience. So, and again, it's a very long-winded answer to what was otherwise a simple question. Uh, and the other reason being, I like it. I like horror, and I don't think it's necessarily endangering my soul. And it's telling me narratives that uh, that I appreciate and value. So uh, it's at the risk of sounding cocky and even obnoxious. I'm like, if watching Friday the 13th makes you a huge sinner and drives you away from God, then you're doing something wrong in the first place. That's not the movie. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that is a great can, point. <laughs> and I can agree with that point too. And I, I love the different connections that you you pointed out um, between our society and how we view things and how that's represented in the movies. You you brought up the topic of werewolves, and you're right. We we haven't actually talked about werewolves yet, so maybe we should uh, open up to to a werewolf question here. As a reference to uh, to our deep dive theme, what? What's your opinion on why werewolves aren't really portrayed more in, in film and TV? Our current theory right now is that they aren't, a, we like to just use the term, they aren't sexy enough. Oh, Ooh. See, I first of all, I, I, I'm I going to argue with your thesis. Who says werewolves aren't appearing enough? There are a ton of werewolf stories out there. Not all of well, them are like... They don't get maybe as much attention as as the vampire stuff. Like vampires are yeah, dominant monsters. That's what we were referring and to. Like the and zombies and ghosts are pretty big. But there's a lot of werewolf stuff out there. And it, it admittedly, it is a subgenre. You have to have a taste for it. But if you have a taste for it, there's academic sources. Um uh Brian Frost's book, uh The Reader's Guide, The Essential Guide to Werewolf Literature. There's a book called uh Phases of the Moon, which is all about werewolf cinema that's absolutely brilliant. And there's, I actually wrote an academic article about 10 years ago talking about, it's all about the clash of civilizations right now, monsters or vampires and werewolves, because you have the whole Underworld series, you have Twilight, well, preferably not, but you have it, 
which again, you have, there's that, there's True Blood. And in all three of these, vampires above, werewolves below. The vampires are aristocratic, werewolves are always working class. The vampires are living in their palaces and going to their, uh, you know, sort of goth raves, the blood room and blade. And the werewolves are like the working class guys who ride motorcycles and hang out in dive bars. I'm like, why are the werewolves always like the working class guys, working class werewolves, you know, even what we do with the shadows, you've got the, yes. the vampires who are sexy, and then you have the werewolves, not swearwolves, uh, who are, who are kind of goofy. Uh, well, Buffy the Vampire, the Vampire Slayer, goofy. that's been the show I've been rewatching, and Oz yeah. has a whole character arc as a werewolf. Mm -hmm. I think partly it's because uh, the the werewolf lore has never really sort of been been settled. We, we For me, I find werewolves incredibly open. You can play with them. Mm -hmm. uh, and there are all sorts of narratives that are like, no, that whole silver thing is a lie. No, that whole full moon thing is a lie. That we're able to sort of play with the tropes of the, of the character and, and and play with it. I've, I've seen some great werewolf stuff lately. The book and the Netflix series of um, Hemlock Grove. Viking Wolf just came out recently. Wolf Cop, Wolf Cop 2, Canadian werewolf films. There's, oh, was it Werewolves Within? Which is delightful yeah. and fun I'm, and funny. I'm going to talk about that on the deep dive, actually. Yes. So there's <laughs> I heard of that one yet. werewolfy out there. And of mm -hmm. course, when you talk to people about like great 80s horror, somewhere in that top 10 list will either be The Howling, An American Werewolf in London, or both. Mm -hmm. And I think what it is, is the werewolf film, pardon the pun, goes through phases, like the moon. Uh, <laughs> we have periods of like, thank you, thank you very much, I'll be here all week. Uh, <laughs> you have like these really, these periods of really great werewolf films, and then these periods where they either go away or a giant piece of cat comes out where you're like, ah, why does that exist? Like the, two, was it 2010? That Universal tried to reboot The Wolfman with Benicio Del Toro and Anthony Hopkins. And yes, that was like, actually one of the films I watched uh, for yeah, Hasbro Deep Dive and all. <laughs> Are you okay? Do you need a hug? You know, I I mean, at, at the time of this release, I've already talked about it. I didn't mind it. It had its ups and downs. There were things in the comparison to the original that I yeah. could appreciate more. But ultimately, you know, remakes are remakes. And yeah. they just historically they're not as good as they were and that's just it is there are so many more inventive interesting uh indie uh werewolf films out there there's a british film called howl about a train that gets stopped out in the middle of the woods surrounded by werewolves and it's like that's so good it's really good um late phases one of my favorite filmmakers uh jim mickle and nick Demichi. they write together and then nick acts and jim directs and uh nick plays a blind veteran who moves into a uh a sort of uh, elderly community and he, he's a blind veteran and it turns out one of the people living in the elderly community is a werewolf and so it's about a blind veteran trying to track down and kill a werewolf and it's it's so inventive and interesting and it's low budget but the effects are so good so i, I as a fan truth be told i prefer werewolves to vampires i find them so much more interesting i find the narratives more fun and there's there's some great werewolf novels out there. There's great werewolf film. There's great werewolf TV. And then there's also crappy werewolf TV. There's a series on Netflix called The Order. Sorry if you're a fan or if you made it, but uh, <laughs> it's about a secret society at school that is battling a group of werewolves that also happen to attend the same school. I'm like, this is terrible planning on someone's part. Because <laughs> should these be like rival schools? Why? You know, the we are the werewolf slayers. We are the werewolves. Why are you both at this university? Shouldn't like one of you go somewhere in Ohio or something like, seems like that would be safer, more sense. Yeah. I don't get it. I don't mm -hmm. get it. But 
I'll also tell you one other thing. I think CG has sort of ruined werewolf movies because when you look at the physical transformations and like the howling that are a uh, physical effect, you look at the practical effects of American Werewolf in London, that transformation sequence where David Naughton in full light becomes a werewolf. Those are scary and brilliant and gross and wonderful. But when you watch something like Wes Craven's Cursed, where, you know, Pacey from Dawson's Creek, sorry, spoiler alert, is a werewolf. Come <laughs> on, dude. Oh, and Jesse Eisenberg, too. What, what, what are we doing? Why are we doing this? Yeah. It's, it's CG werewolf-free, and it looks so bad. So it's not scary. It's just sad and painful. But you see a, a really good werewolf transformation, even a good CG transformation. That's some scary stuff, man. And that's the problem. You know who vampires are, and mostly vampires, in theory, can't go out in the sun. Yet another invention of cinema. And when you go back into the ur myths of these things, if you are a werewolf in life, you become a vampire during death. Oh, no interesting. That thing, yeah. <gasps> or you became a werewolf through a deal with the devil. That you make a deal with the devil, and the devil gives you a, a wolf pelt belt or a wolf skin that when you put on, yeah. or a cream that when you rub it on, turns you into a werewolf. And, you know, Hollywood comes along and says, nay, there are other things you can do. And so, you know, the, it's, it's, it's the artist, it's the fiction that took this interesting mythology about shape changing and put it, you know, started adding all of this other stuff. Oh, it's only during the full moon. Oh, silver bullets killed them. Like, yeah, there are, you know, German werewolves from the 14th century. You can kill them with a sword. It doesn't need to be silver. They're, they're just physical bodies. They're like wolves. You can hack them apart. Get them with a couple arrows. You're good. So, yeah. Okay. Well, so if you were going to survive against a werewolf, if we were using like traditional okay. terms, like full moon, mm -hmm. I'll say like artist creativity, you can kill them basically how you would want. But what would you do with a werewolf if you had like, are you a fight, flight, or freeze? What would you do if you're like in the woods, you come across a werewolf, they transform, and you can tell in their mind, they're going to be like, I'm going to eat you. Right. Well, see, the, and this is why I think werewolves are cool horror monsters. Zombie, shoot them in the head, cut off the head, done. And they're not that strong individually. It's in groups that zombies are dangerous. Vampires <clears> scary, <throat> but sunlight means at least half the day we're cool. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, fill the room with crosses, garlic, holy water, give yourself a steak, and you got a pretty good shot of making it through the night. Werewolf, first of all, you don't know who's a werewolf because they're human most of the time. And second of all, unlike zombies, individuals are incredibly strong. They're not that easily killed. If you go by both the, the 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 sort of mythos and the Hollywood version, you know you can cut off an arm, shoot it through the the heart, and it's going to still keep coming. So they're they're a little bit unstoppable, and that's problematic because if they bite you, then they pass along the lycanthropy. Now you're going to be one. So you know you it's one of these things where you know a zombie can touch you and you're fine. You can like keep its mouth away and put the shotgun in the face, and you're all right. With a werewolf, man, you've got this thing that's super agile, super fast, has the strength of a wolf, and you got to take it down before it touches you. Because if that mouth gets on you, if it pierces the skin and, and whatever it is that causes it gets in you, it's over. So for me, I think what saves you is height. Mm -hmm. You get uh, somewhere high. Okay. You, um, <laughs> if, I'm, if I'm planning werewolf trapping, I go out in the woods, I cut down all the trees but one in like a 30-foot radius. Uh, like in Jurassic Park, you put a high height up there. All walls are, are all the windows are covered with steel mesh, and I want to be up there with uh, first and foremost guns with steel bullet with silver bullets. But I also want at least two silver tip spears and order three silver because blades don't need reloading. 
And if this thing is fast enough, also, I don't do it alone. If you're mm. doing this, you need at least three people to corner it and take it down, even up in the high hide, because <clears throat> this gets the drop on one, the other two can go after it. So you need a group. But uh, and then the biggest thing, of course, is I remind myself and everyone else, don't get cocky. This thing is a successful killer. It is designed by nature to take me down. So just like, you know, swimming with the great white, there's an advantage and it's not mine. Even yeah. if I have a spear gun, the great white is in its own element with all of its own stuff. And it's bigger and it's got more teeth and I get one shot and it gets all of them. You know, think of the werewolf as a great white. So be careful before you put itself in, put yourself into its world and then go in with the tools to finish the job quickly and completely. Don't be like, right. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to go in with my revolver and six shots. Got this. Nope, 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 nope. That's the fastest way to become a hamburger. Uh, that was awesome. I feel like you broke that down so well. And mm -hmm. as we're wrapping up in here, here, I want to ask just a quick couple horror movie specific questions, and sure. then we will head over to Call of Cthulhu pretty soon. Indeed. What was the first horror movie you remember seeing? <laughs> I The short answer is I don't remember the first one. I remember asking my parents to take me to see The Omen when I was six, and then when it came out, and them saying, absolutely not. And me being like, okay, can I buy the novelization? And they're like, yeah, sure, go ahead. Because I was allowed to read whatever I wanted, but they were worried about movies. And I asked them about The Exorcist, because uh, my parents went to see it, and they're like, oh, that's a terrible movie, scaring you. And it's one of my favorite films of all time, so uh, surely I've made up for lost time. I There were two things that, that sort of came about. I, I remember seeing some of the Universal films, Dracula, The Wolfman, Frankenstein, because my grandfather told me, you know, he was born in, I think, 1917. So he's like, oh, I, I saw Frankenstein when it came out in the movie theater. It's the scariest thing I've ever seen. So eight-year-old me is like, oh, I got to watch Frankenstein. And I'm watching it going, I've lost respect for my grandfather. Like, how is this scary? This is sad. But I do remember, I remember seeing Jaws when it was on TV and being scared by it. But also, I grew up in the age, because I'm old, I grew up in the age where before cable, we just had four channels, you know, the three networks and PBS. And then there were like three or four indie channels out of New York and Boston, because I lived in Connecticut almost halfway between the two. You know, on good days, we could get in maybe a total of eight channels. Uh, wow. So my my local NBC affiliate uh, would have the four o'clock movie every day from four to six they would show a movie and they would have theme weeks so this is romance week this is Gregory Peck week and about three or four times a year they would have scary week uh, one would be in October but there'd be like for, for whatever reason there'd be one in June and one in January so uh, three times a year I'd just rush home and watch whatever was on and it might be food of the gods it might be the rats it might be oh the rats are coming the werewolves are here one of the best titles of all time um uh the tower of evil so i saw the oh, crowhaven witches see i remember all these and also i remember them because my mother would serve dinner at six so i never saw the ending of any of them at like 10 no. or 6 <laughs> be like go wash up i'm like mom there's 10 minutes left in the movie she's like go wash up we're having dinner fine i'm like trying leaving it on sticking my head out of the bathroom trying to see down the hall and she'd go in and turn it off and i'd be like ah whatever so when, when VHS finally came out, I'd start renting these movies and just fast forward to the end to finally find out what happened. Oh my goodness. And then when I was a little older, the first movie I remember seeing in a movie theater was when I was in junior high. I won a radio station contest to go see Cujo. So my best friend and I went on a date with uh, this girl that I had a crush on and her best friend who had a crush on my best friend. So I liked her. She didn't like me and her friend liked my friend and he didn't like her. So it was the most awkward date ever. But we all oh saw gosh. Cujo together. 
Uh, and and I, that's so I a shared that. experience that you would all remember. Indeed. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, it, and again, and this is my same friend, Tom, that I've grown up with, played D&D &D with, all this stuff. He, he and I saw so many horror movies in the theater on VHS. We sought them out. We loved them. We'd watch them. We'd rate them. So yes, in my lifetime, I've seen thousands, if not tens of thousands of horror movies, some over and over. There are some that I watch every year. Some I teach a horror cinema class for LMU. So there's about a dozen or so films that I see every year just in class. But So I show Halloween to the class, but I also watch the original Halloween in October because you gotta. Uh, I show them Trick or Treat, exactly. but I also watch Trick or Treat during Halloween because you gotta. I show them John Carpenter's The Thing, but I will watch The Thing anytime. That is such a good film. So I show them The Exorcist and I've seen that. I went to The Exorcist. Coolest. I've done two really cool things with The Exorcist. I've done a lot of cool things with The Exorcist, but I saw The Exorcist at Hollywood Forever Cemetery with a Jesuit. Jesuit oh. friend of mine and I went to Cinespia, which shows movies on the side of a mausoleum in Hollywood Forever Cemetery. I'm sitting there with a Jesuit, and uh, he had a sweater on, so you couldn't see the collar. We're watching the the film, and the exorcism begins, and he goes, that doesn't happen. That happens. That <sighs> happens a lot more than that. And the person sitting next to us goes, how do you know? And he just pulls down the sweater to show the priest collar, and I'm like, oh. And suddenly everyone sitting around us is listening. His father's going, that happens. Yeah, that happens a lot. And I was like, you've been exorcism? He's like, observed whoa and then i also saw the exorcist at um the old los angeles zoo in griffith park there was a summer where they would get an inflatable screen and show movies and there's there's no light like you have to they're like bring your cell phone bring a flashlight find your way to the old zoo lion enclosure and you sit in the lion enclosure and watch a film the exorcist starts and you have to wait until it's dark enough to show movies outdoors at night and within about 10 minutes there is a giant cloud of weed smoke over the crowd and oh. i'm just sitting there going who gets high and watches The Exorcist? Like, this is this is not the film to wait for the edibles to kick in for. No, no it's no, not. Yeah, that no, doesn't sound like a smart move. Guys. And yeah, there were some people there who had a very bad trip, I think, because you hear like screams and then you'd hear like people talking back to the screen slowly. No, don't do that, Reagan. That's not cool. You're like, that guy's high. You made a mistake, my friend. Yeah, bad decision. Don't do it that yeah. way. <laughs> So I've wow. even seen it in German. When I was in Austria, I went to see Der Exorcist. And for some reason, it is scarier in German. Well, I mean, oh it is a very harsh language. I imagine hearing like praying, being yelled out and Indeed. exercising a demon in German. It would be terrifying to hear. Well, The Exorcist is one of my favorite films. So much so to the point my mother, who hates horror, is willing to play along with me. Uh, if you know anything about The Exorcist, it's Father Damien Karras and his mother. And she calls him Demi. So every once in a while, my mother will call me up and say, Demi, it's me. And I yell into the phone, you're not my mother. And she'll say, Demi, why you leave me to die? Demi, please. And I'm like, thank you, mom. Oh. Thank you for playing the mother from The Exorcist for me. That's <laughs> oh so goodness. sweet. <laughs> yeah. My mother's wow. a very good person. I give her nothing but credit. I, she put up with me as I was growing up. This sort of well-read childhood weirdo who knew a lot and wanted a lot and, and wanted to see things that she's like, I wouldn't watch that movie. It's too scary. I'm like, yeah, because you're a lightweight. I'm 10. Come on, let's do this thing. <laughs> That's just wonderful. I <laughs> I want to ask, I know you love horror, but is there any like tropes or like least favorite movies that you have that you're like, if you want to join the horror field, don't do that? Oh, I mean, there are a ton. Don't do all the cliches. Uh, we've, we've seen them all. Don't talk about elevated horror. Don't say that you're going to make elevated horror because... 
that's so snobby and that's so oh you know i uh this is elevated horror which implies that the rest of horror is garbage horror and i'm like mm -hmm. well, first of all you can't argue taste one of my favorite movies is called children shouldn't play with dead things i do not recommend it to anyone I love it probably because I first saw it when I was 12 on TV. And then when it came out, I have it on VHS. I have two different DVD versions. I got it autographed by the co-writer and star. It was made by the same director who did a Christmas story. Bob Clark. Interesting. The guy who did the Christmas story also did Children Shouldn't Play With Dead Things. And it's about a theater company that goes to rehearse on an island off the coast of Florida. And as a joke, they bring along a grimoire and do a, a ritual to awaken the dead and all of the dead wake up. So it's a zombie movie, but it's with actors from the early 70s. So they're wearing bell bottoms. They're wearing these incredible tops. They all have ridiculous hair. No one's wearing undergarments. It's just so beautifully classless. And I love it because it's a love letter to theater. And there are some great performances and some horrible performances. And no one enjoys this film except everyone who loves this film loves this film every two or three years somewhere here in la it'll be on the big screen they'll put it at the new beverly or the arrow and it always sells out because there's a small group of us that are like this film on the big screen is a perfect thing and it is so much fun but if you ask me what my favorite film is i would tell you it's not a horror film it's shichinin no samurai kurosawa's the seven samurai it is the most perfect a film can be brilliant moving funny smart incredible fight sequences incredibly human the story is so good uh again another film i've seen hundreds of times every year somewhere it's on the big screen in los angeles and i would step over my own mother to go see it again on the big screen because i again i own the criterion collection blu-ray i can watch it anytime i want but to see it on a full screen the way it was supposed to be seen is incredible so and then i think five out of the next seven films are all horror there are two other non-horror in my favorites but dang there you go I'm going to have to add that to my watch list. Well, you introduced me to one of my favorite horror films, Killer uh, Killer Clowns from Outer Space. Killer Clowns from Outer Space. Another which is Nick's one. least favorite. He's terrified of it and has never gotten through the whole I, thing. I, I get it. Uh, no, those are two lies. I never said that. <laughs> I never I never said I didn't finish it. I did finish it, first but off. But you are terrified of it. I am terrified of it. Yeah, um, I would that. I ever watch it again? Of course, but <laughs> do you not you know, like clowns? Oh no, I I'm totally fine with clowns. I love clowns. It's the clowns from outer space. It's the fact that they all have basically. I don't know if you know the term tune force. It's it's a term I was recently introduced to. It's the fact that they they're all tune force powered creatures, and obviously they uh, lean towards a chaotic nature. So. Indeed. That's the true thing that is terrifying to me. See, and that's why I think werewolves are better than vampires. They're because chaotic. vampires are order monsters. There are mm -hmm. rules for vampires and they have to follow the rules. And werewolves are like rule schmools. Let's get to it. Exactly. They're chaos muppets, man. I'm so glad that you also like werewolves more than vampires. I've always been a werewolf fan. So Yeah, I'm team, I mean... I'm team werewolf and team zombie and team ghost. <laughs> I'll tolerate vampires. I've written about vampires. I've watched a lot of vampire movies. I've seen some good ones. There's a fun one from Canada called Blood and Donuts that I really like, but uh, about a vampire who goes to sleep for 25 years after the moon landing and wakes up in the mid-90s in Toronto being like, this is a completely different world after yeah. 25 years. 
And so he spends all of his time at an all night donut shop, getting to know people and deciding who to, you know, who to eat and who to help. Uh, and I thought at the time it was a very clever film in terms of exploring one of the aspects of vampirism that almost never gets touched on these sort of long periods of inactivity and what happens when you emerge into a culture that you know nothing about. Yeah. That's, um, that is really cool. Most cinema doesn't like cover that a whole lot or, no. or they, if they touch on it, it's very brief as if like, no. kind of like, like the, like Marvel when they're like, Oh yeah, Thor knows how to use a toaster. Like, yeah. no, he's a God from years ago. I don't think he's going to figure out how to use a toaster. Yeah, but like you watch the Underworld films and they're like, oh, here's a vampire that has been hibernating for 500 years. He's like, hello, bring me a cell phone. And you're like, how, how does he know like, about That's some... inaccurate. No, no, no dude. <laughs> Whereas the werewolves are like, give me another beer. Then I'm going to kick this guy's ass. Like, yeah, working class monster. I'm there. <laughs> we love Gotta the working class, working class monster. <laughs> Gotta love the working class monsters. Well, one more question as we wrap up the interview. You you just shared so much wisdom, but what is, if you could wrap up like one piece of wisdom for people who want to pursue an entertainment industry, what would, what would you say? Someone's like, I want to do this. How? <laughs> Make other people say no. Don't say no to yourself. Make other people say no. People will tell you no, and that's fine. That's part of the business. I've been told no more than I've been told yes. But like the man says, you miss 100% of the shots you don't take. So make other people say no. I've been told no. You know, I want to do this. No. Okay. The only way you get to do stuff as an artist is asking or saying, I'm going to do this and making other people say no. And when they don't say no, you get to do it. Yeah. So, you know, the don't stop yourself. There are enough people out there who are more than happy to stop you. Don't stop yourself. And that's, that's not just art. That's life. You want to ask someone out, ask them out. You want to go to something, go to it. Make other people say no. Don't say no to yourself. You do it. Yeah. Let others yeah. stop you. I think that's really good advice. So do you want to do a quick plug at the end of the interview of what you're currently working on? You can go to my website, www.somethingwetmore this way comes all one word.com. <laughs> uh, easy to love it. Something wet more this way comes uh, wet more. No H felt like I went out in the rain and got wet more. And then there's a lot of stuff there. You can, you can, there's Amazon links to all of my books and uh, anthologies that contain my short stories, magazines that contain my short stories. Uh, I'm directing a show at LMU in the spring, a Japanese show called Akayoni. Uh, I'm directing Troilus and Cressida for Shakespeare on the Bluff in the summer of uh, 24. I've got a couple books coming out next year. Uh, I just had a book come out called Theater in the Macabre. I co-edited it with uh, Meredith Conti, and it's all about horror theater. The follow-up to that is called Stage Fright, which is a solo written volume that I have coming out next year. My book on Lovecraft and the theater will uh, follow on that. And I've got, I'm um, surrounded by piles of books because I have another several projects lined up after that. So keeping busy. Yay. Thank you, Kevin, for your, your time. And I just want to say thank you to our listeners for uh, taking time to listen to this amazing interview. Don't forget to uh, give us a like. Don't forget to subscribe. And check us out for our ne next episode where Kevin will join us again. Uh, we'll be playing Call of Cthulhu. And Kylie and I are going to see if we can beat the werewolf. Well, so long, everybody. Bye now.